We've been going through Matthew 13 for a number of weeks. And Jesus set out with many parables that he gave to these, these Jews that were listening to him. And he said a lot of things, a lot of hard things. The first parable we saw Pastor Nick preached about a farmer and the sower who planted seed. And, but it was about these soils. There was a, a stony soil, a thorny soil. There was a path that some of these seeds hit. But then there was good soil that, that really the, the Word of God, the, the gospel took root in. The second parable was about wheats and, and tares, the tares being false teachers. The third parable about a mustard seed and how the kingdom of heaven starts small but gets bigger. Fourth one about leaven or you could say yeast and how things spread. The fifth one was about hidden treasure in a field and we heard that last week. The sixth about a pearl of great price. And the seventh one today is about a dragnet. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. Now, this dragnet is in a sea, and there's a couple different ways that theologians have looked at this passage. That this sea was maybe the church, and this dragnet is being swept through the church. But typically, when you looked at the sea in parables, or even in the Old Testament, the sea was looked at as the world in general. The the world at large. And so I believe Jesus is talking about the world at large, that there is this dragnet being drugged through the world at large. Now in ancient times and even today, there's several different ways you can fish. Jesus told his disciples to be fishers of men. And when I think of that, I, I think of throwing one line into the water and casting and putting some bait on it, fishing that way. That's how I've always fished. There, there's, a, there's another way you can fish, and it's throwing a net into the water that has sinkers and floaters, and it goes down, and you're trying to get a particular maybe school of fish. So you're trying to get one type of fish that kind of swim together. But then there was a third way in ancient times and even today that people fished. They would anchor a net to the shore and they would take a boat and go all the way out as far as they could go and then they would row into the shore and that drag net would drag everything in with it. It was not discriminating at all. Or they would take two boats, one on one side, one on the other, and they would drag this big net till they got to the shore and they would haul it in and then they would separate it. Well, Jesus is talking about this third way, this big drag net that is not going after one particular fish or one fish, it's going after them all. And so everything that got in that net came to the shore. And the fishermen, there were certain fish that were 
edible, and other fish that really weren't edible, they would take it and spend hours sorting these fish. So this would have been a familiar concept to those people that Jesus was talking to. They knew what a dragnet was. They understood it. Jesus is saying no one escapes this dragnet. There is coming a day when this dragnet will be brought to shore. You see, Jesus in Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven so many times. You know, the kingdom of heaven we've learned is not a neutral kingdom. It's not, okay, we're for every side. It's not like Switzerland, let's say. Kind of a, when I think of Switzerland, I think kind of a neutral kingdom. They're not going to take many sides unless they have to. And that may not even be true nowadays. I don't even know. I haven't thought of Switzerland in a long time. They do make nice knives, but um, Swiss Army knife. Okay, good. Um, the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy either or a constitutional republic. It has an authoritarian king, and that king is Jesus. There's no voting on what happens in the kingdom of heaven. There's a monarch, and he reigns and rules on that throne. There's a citizen registry called the Lamb's Book of Life or the, the Life Book that if you are born again, your name is in that book, the book of life. There's a registry in this kingdom. And one thing that there is not in this kingdom, there's no illegal immigration. You come through the front door in this kingdom by Jesus' blood and righteousness that we sang about this morning. You don't get in through the back door. There is no back door in this kingdom. Jesus says, the sheepfold, you come through me. And so there's a lot about the kingdom of heaven that kind of touches on our sensibilities, is it not? And Jesus is the head of this. You see, the Jewish people would have understood to some degree this dragnet illustration. They would have seen this imagery and go, well, you know what? That was the end of those fish. That was the end of those fish. And so there's three points that I want us to wrestle with today. And this is a harder message because it is on judgment. The first point is judgment is a reality for all. Judgment is a reality for all. I know most of us probably do not live our lives every day when we get up and think of a, a judgment or a, a coming judgment. But in this parable, we learn that there will be reality of a judgment for every one of us. We will be judged righteous or evil as this parable states. There's only, when you look at this parable, two categories of people on this earth. 
evil, and righteous. Our text states that. And the reality is, if you look at Romans 3.23, which says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all of us are evil from birth. And we have our father Adam to thank for that. By one man's wickedness, we all were plunged into sin. But by one man's righteousness, we can be redeemed. You see, our fallen state is evil. And that is reality that the wrath of God abides upon us apart from the work Jesus Christ did on the cross. You see, James 2.10 says, For whosoever keeps the whole law, so I've been righteous, everything, but uh, there's that one thing that I did. I am guilty of all, the Bible says in James 2.10. Who's heard of closeness only counts in two things? Horseshoes and hand grenades. It doesn't count in the kingdom of God. You got close. You have to be perfect to inherit the kingdom of God, to be in the Lamb's book of life. You have to be perfect. And how many of you here have been perfect? No hands have went up. So what does that mean? You, my friend, are destined to hell. That is the reality because you will receive judgment and are destined to hell. Now, if you don't believe the Bible and you want to do some other alternate reality, that's on you. But if you believe the Word of God, there is coming judgment. A lot of us don't think of ourselves as wicked. We don't look at ourselves as evil, and I don't look at you as evil or wicked. I see the good in you. But what is reality? There is no good in us apart from Jesus Christ's righteousness. The Bible talks about all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. You offend in one point, you are guilty of all. And the reality is all of us will be judged your righteousness will send you straight to hell. Straight to eternal damnation. But there is good news, and that is part of the gospel, is Jesus' righteousness will earn you a ticket into paradise, eternal life. And that is the only righteousness that counts because Jesus was the only human to live that perfect life. If Jesus was sitting on the front row or the back row or wherever and I asked the question, who in here is perfect, he would be able to do this and raise his hand because he lived that perfect life, the Bible tells us. And so he says, if you have faith in me and believe in me and obey me, you can have my righteousness. And I'm going, wait a second. That's reality? I can have Jesus' righteousness put on my behalf? Sign me up. Where do I sign up for that? 
That's the reality of the situation. The reality is, at the end of the age, the angels will do God's bidding and sort the wicked from the righteous. Do you think about the reality of judgment in your life? Judgment has a finality for all. Second point, judgment, finality for all. So there is a reality that we will all be judged. There's also the reality that there is finality to this judgment. You see, those fish didn't have a redo button. We don't have a redo button. This isn't a video game where I get another life. I did my aunt's funeral on Tuesday. She was 92 years old. And um, the family had uh, cremated her, and so she was in a little box. Now, when I did the eulogy, she didn't pop out with another life and said, okay, I get a redo in this one. That's not possible. Now, she will have another life, and I'm praying she was born again, but she doesn't get a redo in this life. What happened in this life, she will be judged for. Either her righteousness, which sends her to hell, or Christ's righteousness, which she will spend eternity in paradise. She had judgment coming, just like I do, just like you do. We see in this parable that once you are brought to the shore, there's no throwing you back into the sea to get a redo. I don't play video games, but I hear in video games you get nine lives like a cat or so, or more power or whatever. It's not reality in real life. We have one life to live. 48, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate evil from the righteous, verse 50, and throw them into a fiery furnace in a place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When this judgment comes, it'll be like a gavel from a judge hitting the bench. The end has come and you will be judged. See, there's not a scale of the good and the bad. We saw in James, one sin, guilty of all. So your scale doesn't work. In Matthew 7, there will be people that say, Lord, Lord. Listen to Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. These are people calling God Lord, Lord. Will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers 
of lawlessness. But you say, man, I'm good. Matter of fact, I don't even cast out demons. <laughs> uh, I don't prophesy. I do no works. You probably aren't good either. Here were people that thought they were working for God. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Plenty of warnings in the parables that we just went through. Soils, wheat, tares. Examine yourself. Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Or do you realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You see, the Corinthians were living in all sorts of sins. Big sins, little sins, unrepentant sins. And Paul is giving them a warning. Listen, test yourself. Are you in the faith? Just because you prayed a prayer when you were six doesn't mean anything. Are you in the faith? And just because you've called Jesus Lord, Lord, does not mean you will enter heaven. No redo buttons. There's no extra life. The reality is we will all be judged. And when we are judged, there's finality to it. There's no second chances. You need to accept Jesus Christ's righteousness today because today is the day of salvation. You may not have tomorrow. You may walk out these doors and get crushed by a bus. Reality, finality, eternality for all. This judgment is eternal. Listen to Matthew 25, and we're going to be getting here next year in Matthew. Verse 31 and on to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Kind of reminds you of the fish, doesn't it? Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or even visit you? And the king will answer truly them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, 
You did it to me. Verse 41, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick, prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison? And did we and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He's not talking here about work salvation, but what he is talking about is the gospel's outworking in someone who is saved from the wrath of God, life. They will do good works, not out of compulsion, but out of love for God. We talked in Sunday school today about preaching the gospel to ourselves daily and how we can love, we are freed to love one another through the gospel because when I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me and loved me. I can exchange, I can exchange, Put that love out to others. I can have mercy on others because I have had mercy shown to me through the gospel. I can be gracious to others because I have had grace shown to me. I can love deeply because of what the gospel has done in my life. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1.5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicting as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in Him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is what most of us want. Paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. But this final warning in this chapter talks about an eternal death where the worm does not die. The fire will not be quenched. The Bible speaks about in other places. 
There is still hope while you are on this earth. You have a breath that you just breathed. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. But in hell, there is no hope. At the judgment, there is no hope if you are evil and not righteous. No hope at all. We like on this earth the idea of justice, do we not? We want justice. We cry for justice. We want justice. We like that idea that evil will be dealt with. But how many of us want evil dealt with with the eternality of hell? But that is what's happening, is evil is being dealt with in hell. Randy Alcorn in his book, If God is Good, says this, We cry out for true and lasting justice. Then fault God for taking evil too seriously by administering eternal punishment. We can't have it both ways. Sin is evil. Just punishment of sin is good. Hell is an eternal correction of and compensation for evil. It is justice. To fear and dread hell is understandable. But to argue against hell is to argue against justice. It's not like we have not been warned. If you read all through Scripture, we are warned of what is coming. Jesus talked more about hell than He did heaven. Because He wants you to know what is coming apart from His righteousness being accounted on your behalf. Are you giving this warning to your friends? Are you giving this warning to your family? You see, the gospel is not just about paradise, but it is also about warning of a judgment to come that will be eternal. C.S. Lewis said this, I have met no people who fully disbelieve in hell and also had a living and life-giving belief in heaven. The biblical teaching on both destinations stands or falls together. If one is real, the other is real. If one is a myth, the other is a myth. The best reason for believing in hell is Jesus talked about it and said it was real, a real place. You know, sometimes we want to pride ourselves in being loving. And we may think we're very loving for not telling people about the eternality, the finality, and the reality of hell. But in saying this, we blaspheme. For we claim, or we act like we are more loving than even Jesus. Which we are not loving at all if we do not talk about the realities, the finality, and the eternality of the lake of fire or hell. Jesus believed it existed. He taught that it existed. You read Revelation, you see that it exists. We are not or should not be 
more loving, and I put that in air quotes, than Jesus. There's a popular concept in today's world called annihilation that a lot of people are believing that's popping up in Christian culture. It sounds more merciful that you will just die. You will seek to exist. I mean, that does sound more merciful, but is it true? Is there a reality to that? There's a lot of people that do not believe in hell. I was reading uh, atheist Bertrand Russell, and he wrote this. There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. I do not myself feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Now, this man's an atheist. It says Jesus had corrupt moral character for believing in hell. But I wonder in the last days what Mr. Russell will believe. Clark Pinnock writes this, It's time for evangelicals to come out and say that the biblical and morally appropriate doctrine of hell is annihilation, not everlasting torment. Now, Pennant goes on to say, I was led to question the traditional belief of everlasting conscience, torment, because of moral revulsion and broader the theological considerations. Not, first of all, on scriptural grounds. So what he says is, I didn't get this from scriptural grounds, but there's a moral re revulsion and a some other theological considerations that I put in there. Not necessarily scripture. He admits this of why he believes in annihilation. It just does not make any sense to say that a God of love will torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. Pinnock reaches his conclusion not with scripture or what Jesus said but with feelings. We do that with a lot of things ourselves, though, don't we? And we either stand on this word and believe it, or we don't. There's a, a man that I deeply love as a theologian, and, but he believed in annihilation. John Stott wrote about the eternal conscious torment, and he says this, Emotionally, I find the concept intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. Scripture points in the direction of annihilation. Now, I greatly respect John Stott. He was a great advocate for inspiration and authority of Scripture. But Scripture does not point towards annihilation. And he even says, if, if you believe in hell, it puts an emotional strain upon you that you cannot bear. But is that how we interpret Scripture? No. What does Jesus say? 
What does Jesus teach? And the reality, finality, and eternality of hell is real. At the end of the day, we don't get a vote. It isn't we come together, who votes for annihilation? Who votes for eternality? Hey, who votes for universality? Carlton Pierce just died. Believe that. Everybody will get to paradise. There may be a little bit of mourning and whatever, but everybody's going to get to paradise. Randy Elkhorn writes this, If, as the Bible teaches, Christ's redemptive work is so magnificent that it delivers us from an eternal hell, then it should elicit maximum worship from us. But if it delivers us from only non-existence, which is exactly the end atheists, naturalists, and materialists believe in, then we may feel grateful to God for what we are rescued to, heaven, but not so grateful that we are rescued from mere non-existence. But if we realize what we are rescued from, that should cause maximum worship in our hearts. It is daunting to think about hell. But that is why God gave us mouths and ears so we could proclaim the goodness of the gospel to those around us. That's why we should have enough love in our hearts to go, brother, sister, I don't want you to eternally be in hell. God has made a way of escape. Will you proclaim that to those you love? Simon Wheel wrote this, One can only excuse men for evil by accusing God of it. And if you say that annihilation is what must happen, and that is not what God says, then you are accusing Him of evil. I don't know what you believe here today, whether you believe in a heaven, whether you believe in a hell. But I knew, know that these verses say there is coming a day of judgment. There is coming a day of reckoning. There is coming a day that you will stand before an almighty God and give an account of your life. I do know that if this word is true, that there are two places we will either have eternal life or eternal death. And I want badly for each one of you to be born into eternal life by being born again, by accepting Jesus' righteousness on your behalf, not your own righteousness. There is a reality of judgment. There is a finality that there's no redos. And there is an eternality that it will last for all the ages to come. Jesus asked his disciples, have you understood all of these things? And he's talking about all these parables that were brought forth over the last few weeks. They said, of course we understand. They, and he says to them, Therefore, every scribe 
whom has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Do you comprehend these things, Jesus is asking them? Do you understand that everything in life is leading to the coming of the age? You may, See, God is sovereign. You may think you're getting away with whatever, and you may see people getting away with whatever, but that dragnet is drawing nearer and nearer and nearer to the shore every day. Every day it's coming near to the shore. It's rowing. It's rowing and rowing. The end of the age is coming and all will be caught up. Are you proclaiming the kingdom of heaven? Are you talking about the positives, the love of Christ? Are you also talking about the negatives? Because I believe that's what he's talking about here. The, there's coming of day when evil will be judged, that justice will happen. I was thinking about why, why do we have such a hard time with the eternality, the finality, and the reality of hell? Because we have a hard time with everlasting judgment. We feel in our culture that if you kill someone, Maybe you serve 40 years, but there's redemption after that. If you rape someone 20 years, whatever that may be, but you get out, you're rehabilitated. And there's time for that. But if you look at righteous judgment, the Bible talked about if you kill someone, your life should be taken. We think of things in gradients. But it's one way or the other. There's eternal, eternality of hell or eternality of paradise. Where we can't even imagine how glorious heaven's going to be. I could not describe heaven to you today in such glorious terms that it will be. But I also, on the flip side, cannot tell you about how bad hell is going to be because it's going to be worse than I could even describe. And you say, well, now you're just making a fear monger. You're just manipulating people. Matthew 10, 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say it in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Yes, we should be in fear of God. There is a healthy fear of God because he can put our soul and body in hell. We don't live this life out of fear, though. We live it because He loved us. But we still should have a fear of God. And if you are apart from Jesus' work on the cross, you should be doubly fear of God because He will send your soul to eternal damnation 
apart from Jesus' perfect work. And I tell you this today, not out of hate, but out of love. You see, these disciples were walking around as sheep among wolves without, with this unpopular message. God says, don't fear those people around you. Fear me. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them, saying, in their synagogue, so that they will be astonished and said, where, they said, where did this man get his wisdom? And these mighty works. He was doing some crazy stuff. He was saying some wisdom pearls dropping it on them. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did they get all these things? But they took offense at him. Excuse me. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. Just as faith has power to bring forgiveness and eternal life, unbelief has power to hold a person in his sins and under condemnation of eternal hell. Just as belief has the power to bring eternal happiness, joy, peace, and glory in God's presence, unbelief has the power to bring eternal sorrow, pain, and anguish in God's absence. John MacArthur wrote that in this portion of Scripture. I got to thinking, what is your unbelief causing in your life today? Your unbelief doing to your family today. You see, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. There is a reality that all of us will be judged. There is a finality that the judgment when the gavel comes down and you are either righteous or evil, there are new redos. There's also an eternality to the sentence that is handed down of eternal life in paradise with Jesus or eternal death in a place that was not made for humans but made for the devil and his angels. But you will receive justice either way through the righteousness of Christ or your own sin. You will pay for that sin in eternal damnation where the fire will not be quenched and where the worm will not die. I believe these are the words of our God today for us as the people of God.